0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Andrew Lawrence, the CEO and co-founder of Senso. Senso aims to provide self-custody and private key management solutions for organizations to better manage and protect their digital assets that they hold to differentiate itself from other solutions, Senso utilizes a biometric authentication scheme using mobile phones to provide additional security. In this conversation, Andrew and I discuss how we recognized blockchain's utility early on in 2012 when thinking back on his experiences with derivatives markets, the importance of focusing on open-source development and the immutability of information stored on chain, how the glacial bureaucratic pace of institutions might have been a blessing in disguise, Censo's outlook on which blockchain the market will use moving forward, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Andrew, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Andrew Lawrence, the CEO of Senso. He and his team are building decentralized key management for organizational control. How are you doing today, Andrew?
1: Dylan, I'm great and uh, great to be on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited to kind of dig into your background and what you're working on now. So to kind of jump into the deep end, you have a really diverse background in financial markets. So can you just kind of give us a brief overview of what your story arc has been like throughout your career?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks. So maybe I, I can start at present and work my way back a little bit. So as you mentioned, I'm I'm the CEO and I'm also the co-founder at Senso. And interestingly, my other co-founder is Charlie Walden, who's the CTO here. And Charlie and I, unbelievably, have been together uh, pretty much on, on for about 25 years, which uh, I'd like to say it's a very, uh, it's a very fruitful partnership between the two of us, we actually have a complete brain, uh, which is, it comes in very handy. But uh, we also, fortunately, between the two of us, have had a number of successes, including two companies that have gone from uh, garage to U.S. IPO. And the third one, which was a fintech that we did, which was called Longitude, where we re-engineered the way that derivatives markets work at the microstructure level. And we ended up selling that company to Goldman Sachs. And that company is currently operated uh, by NASDAQ. And I encountered crypto way back in 2012. And without uh, belaboring the details, when I first read the Bitcoin white paper, as I like to say, when I read it the third time and I finally understood it, mostly. I realized that there was a very powerful rhyme between how blockchains are organized and mutualized balances and credit and how we mutualized market risk in this longitude company that we sold to Goldman. And that sent me straight down the rabbit hole. And I thought to myself, if we had had an encodable blockchain at that time, instead of teaming up, we teamed up with places like Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, global enterprises with this company longitude because we didn't have any credit right we were a tech company and they collateralized our transactions and really crazily enough back in 2012 after i read the white paper i said to myself wow if we had had an encodable blockchain we could just stamp these transactions into into a blockchain and that was of course eight years before DeFi summer or anything of that nature and so the truth be told is that idea back then was totally loony in some ways but it was also a fascinating time in crypto because in 2013, I went out and met with a number of the uh, core devs on the Bitcoin project to discuss modifying the protocol to allow things such as this. And back then, believe it or not, people were actually talking about doing things like that with the Bitcoin protocol. And of course, we know the story since then that that hasn't been the case. And that, that got my interest. And then Charlie and I decided crypto was compelling enough. We were going to do a company in the space. And that led to Senso. So that was hopefully not too much, but uh, kind of like my recent trajectory, I would say.
0: No, it sounds like you got into Bitcoin during a really interesting time, especially, uh, I hope I'm not doxing you, but being based out of New York, there was a lot of activity that was going on in you know the early 2010s, uh, the late aughts. So were these like kind of pre-bit license days? Were, was there still just kind of an air of excitement? Were the core devs at the time open to outside feedback?
1: For sure. And, and by the way, I mean, I want to characterize my role here properly and not overemphasize it, right? I, I was on certainly very much on the periphery of any of those discussions. But to your point, I think, which is very important as you characterize it, the community was very open to those discussions and it was very, very small. And, you know, I think the community now remains fascinating, the crypto community. But that back then, it was it was really just kind of very unusual because it was so nascent, I would say. So
0: you kind of cut off your your story arc, um, talking about the business that you helped build and then eventually sell. And that was very micro-oriented. But prior to that, you also spent some time at Pantera Capital, which is famous for its macro perspective. And your time there was prior to the launch of its Bitcoin fund. So what were the insights that you picked up at the macro level during your time at Pantera? And did those play any role into your aha moment for Bitcoin beyond the programmability you were just speaking
1: about? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, yeah, as you know, before crypto, Dan and I were uh, partners at Pantera. And before that, I had a career on Wall Street doing, you know, quantitative finance, market making and things of that nature. Though so Pantera was a global macro fund at the time. And of course, uh, one of the Great experiences to live through was the global financial crisis of two thousand eight two thousand and nine uh, and as uh, I think Hank Paulson, the Treasury secretary at the time said it was pretty harrowing if you didn't happen to live through it. Uh, even reading it doesn't do it justice, but Hank Paulson said in a private conversation, and I remember this well, he said, this would be really interesting if it weren't happening to me, <laughs> which I thought was a uh, was a great line but but certainly. I think, you know, those of us who grew up studying or trained or even formally understanding 20th century economic theory and then confronting the global financial crisis and all what I would describe as the extraordinary measures that that the government uh, undertook in order to save the financial system. And I think it's not exaggerated that they did save the financial system, but all these taboos of what was acceptable and unacceptable behavior for policymakers were successfully, you know, in real time sort of just pushed and then pushed over the limit. And, of course, that created a tremendous amount of unease in people who had been in these markets traditionally as to where where it would end up. And I do think also led to some hardened philosophical positions on the role of government in the economy. and you know, I would say I'm in the softer camp on that I, I have a pretty open mind to both policy making as well as role of government but but I also am trained in classical economics as well. And so to some extent, you know the famous birth of bitcoin in that environment to me is not a coincidence either, right? I mean, if the same code had been released five years earlier, it Probably would have just died. Right. And so, you know, in the Genesis block, that famous Times of London article and everything. So I always like to say no matter how, and this is just my personal opinion, no matter how remarkable you think the invention was, it's a miracle that it actually flourished the way it did. Now, other people have different opinions. They say it's inevitable because it's so brilliant, but I think I'm more of a realist. But it it was this. Blending of some of my experience in traditional finance and thinking about, you know, philosophically about government and economics and policy combined with some of the stuff that I did in FinTech before that sort of drove me right into uh, crypto. And, and I, I'm grateful because um, of all the stuff that I've done in my career, I would say crypto remains the most interesting thing.
0: That certainly backs up my stances while well. I left a previous career in the urban planning field to go into crypto full time in 2018 and haven't looked back since. Uh, there's always something new every day. I think it's funny that you touched upon the dichotomy of, A, believing that uh, the U.S. government needed to step in to essentially Bail us out of catastrophe in the in the financial crisis in 2008, and I've read uh, Andrew W. Sorkin's book, which chronicled everything. Uh, so very fascinating to hear you talk about that, but also to recognize that this peer-to-peer protocol was something that was born of the times. So it's an interesting dichotomy you hold, where on one hand you recognize that there needed to be intervention, and on the other hand, it's kind of like a "duh" moment that this technology would be released at the time it did. So. I'm curious then, since it sounds like um, and allow me to just generalize that maybe you were ahead of the boat on a majority of your peers that were working in financial traditional markets who might have scoffed or written off Bitcoin, particularly in its first few years when it was seen as a hyper speculative Internet token that could only be traded on shady exchanges. What was it that kind of like clicked for you immediately? And I want to kind of like parlay this into the work that you're doing at Senso because Bitcoin is inherently something that requires self-sovereignty and kind of digging into and, and understanding on your own. So what was it from that perspective where people had to learn about holding this? And what was its sort of weight and significance compared to the other things you were seeing on Wall Street?
1: There's so much in there. and There's some, so much great stuff in there. Thanks. Firstly, I, I want to issue a, uh, an admission, which is that someone approached me, an acquaintance approached me in 2010 with the uh, white paper. And I have to say, in full disclosure, I completely dismissed him and told him to leave me alone because I had a day job and I had stuff that it was more important with real money. So uh, not like I just had the light bulb go off immediately. And then, you know, of course, in 2012, I revisited it and finally got a little smarter. And, you know, if I could put it in, you know, you you cited uh, really helpfully and highlighted some of the things that drove me towards crypto. But I think another thing that really away from that, which is very simple, which is important, and and I think, you know, my ex-partner, Dan Moorhead, has highlighted this on many, many occasions, particularly at that time, was that even if you thought there was a glimmer of hope that the Bitcoin project would succeed. The asymmetry in the uh, outcomes was just you know, so tremendous. I, I can't even remember what the total market cap was at that time. I recall Bitcoin was trading around 75 bucks or so. So it was a pretty small number. And so if you've ever been in the markets, and I think you do have to be open to new ideas, and thoughts. And also, the, the, I think philosophically has to resonate with you somewhat, the project, which it did. But if you combine all of that with the fact that if you were a, uh, and if you'll excuse the expression, you were a gambler in a private life, the prop, overall proposition would appeal to you. And also, I would say as well, I was very fortunate at the time that I had other professional, personal acquaintances who had a had a similar sort of uh, sim- similar sort of take on things. That being said, I think there was a tremendous amount of resistance and tremendous amount of resistance still remains, maybe somewhat diminished by uh, the erosion of the years on people's egos with regards to this, but there was a, a tremendous amount of resistance that it was just a boneheaded thing to even be considering. And I'm gonna say one more thing and we can get more substantive talk about what we're doing, which is that the truth be told is, When it comes to uh, money, money is one of the most great, one of the greatest abstractions that has ever been invented by humanity, and it's also one of the most difficult for people to apprehend and comprehend. Um, It's faith-based, but it also has objective criteria as to why it should be good or not. And so it was very difficult, I think, early on in getting anyone who believed in the old system, even if they did not understand it, to buy into a new system. So those th- those are some of my thoughts on just the general needs of the questions you asked and then with regards to some of the things that we're working on so thank you for asking about them you know they do surround and you know they are motivated by not just the ideals of self-sovereignty and decentralization but but what we believe to be the necessity of implementing those tenets because you know our belief is is that absent that this whole project is not going to succeed because those are necessary elements of the marketplace and the ecosystem is how I would put it if that I, I i don't know if that resonates with you or not but that's kind of my opinion
0: no it totally does and something i really wanted to pull on and you did a you did a great job on touching it is the wrapping our head around what money is and the value uh, the transactions of value and and what media can be used to transact value And I think this is a great kind of segue into what Senso is, because uh, historically, you know, no matter what civilization we're talking about, whether it's puka shells or gold or dollar bills, there's always been an entity that held on to these kind of media of value as they accrued. If we go back to like the dark ages, it was even food and wheat, right? You would have your farmers put wheat into the castle and then the castle would distribute it. So as time has gone on and just economic models and systems have become more robust and required more and more of these institutions that have provided custody for these various different media of value, why is that important today? And how come this digital assets that have this inherent self-sovereignty how come there need to be um, like entities like Senso that are providing these services for larger institutions? And maybe this is an opportunity to kind of like explain to our audience why an institution needs a custodial provider in order to manage its digital assets?
1: Sure. Maybe I could just wind it on back a little bit and go to first principles and answer that question before we discuss about what we're doing. So you know what's interesting, as you noted, is that we have a system that has been set up that theoretically is decentralized and self-sovereign. However, as it turns out, as the system developed, in particular for organizations, which is the the user base that Senso is concerned with, all organizations, virtually all organizations, uh, used centralized service providers in order to manage their assets and their keys. And those service providers are either regulated custodians, non-regulated custodians or providers of services like uh, you know smart custody solutions like uh, what are called MPC or multi-party computation uh, solutions. And all of those solutions require uh, a third party to control your keys or your key shards and run code that generally is code closed source. Not open source, and also requires trusting those organizations, which seems like a complete, you know, irony, and it actually is. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? And I think there are two reasons, uh, in my mind, anyway, that come to mind. The first one is really a simple one; it's a no-brainer, right? Regulations require it. Okay, so if you're an institution, you require a regulated custodian. That's the end of it. You know, you don't need. We don't need to have any further discussion on that. However, I would say that even in the U.S., although I think most institutions that are regulated err on the side of cautiousness, that is a still an open issue with regards to uh, the law. That is not a settled issue. There There is some stuff pending before the SEC. And in addition to which, five or six years ago, when these custodians and these custody providers arose, these centralized entities, it totally wasn't an issue. So- that's not the reason even though it may be a reason upcoming now so what is the reason well the reason is it's a good one which is that people needed a solution to key management user experience as it were the the keys were very complex to manage they were fraught with risk as everybody knows and there were tremendous vulnerabilities associated with them right and so you think of it like if you you know if you're an individual user It's complicated already because you have to make decisions on your self-custody solution and how you're going to hold your recovery material. But if you're an institution, it becomes infinitely more complicated because you have a variety of people in user roles. Those user roles may be very nuanced. It's very difficult to control that. And so what people just said is, here, let me give you my keys. You put them in a drawer. And when I don't, don't pick up the phone unless Jim calls, right? And so that was the solution that people went to. And it was meaningful. And I don't mean to diminish it at all. It was absolutely necessary or no one was going to be able to operate in the space. That being said, it does require trust. It does require someone else holding your keys. It tends to be expensive, um, non-decentralized and, and fraught with risk. And you know, we don't even have to go too far, man. All we have to do is take a look at the news flow for the last month and you know what do we've got we've got atomic wallet we've got prime trust we've got floating point group we've got multi chain these are all supposedly incredibly secure technologies and entities that have basically lost substantial amounts of their customers funds and so the ideal i think that we should shoot for and frankly i think the one that was necessary in order to make the project work is to actually decentralize and provide sovereignty to users, whether they're individuals or organizations. And that is the specific area that Senso has focused on. And it's a project that we've been working on for the last two years.
0: Very cool. You've been working on this project for two years. Basically, you've been part of the end of a bull cycle and the beginning of a bear cycle. So when you guys are talking with institutions, potential clients, uh, just having, you know, informal meetings, how over the past two years have the conversations from these institution side entities, how have they changed with the kind of turbulence in the market? Are they undeterred because they've been building for years? Or are they more cautious now after seeing some of the calamities of 2022?
1: Uh, what if I said both? <laughs> so it's kind of interesting, right? So our user base, uh, you know, include what would be described as institutions, corporate treasurers, hedge funds, things of that nature. Anybody, any organization that requires like two or more approvers or key management amongst those people. And then also native Web3 companies. So Dow's, Web3 companies, foundations, treasuries, things of that nature. So I'm going to actually, the latter guys, let's not, let's leave alone for this portion of this question. So the question is, how about the outsiders, right? The TradFi guys, as they call them, what happened there? And, and the truth be told is, my observation is that they found themselves in very uh, fortunate circumstances because back in the Q4 of 2021, Everybody was starting to go to committee, as you do in these traditional firms, to actually get approval to get into crypto. And these organizations move very slowly relative to crypto terms. And so by the time they moved, they got through the committee pipeline, crypto was getting decimated. And I think 90% of these guys just said, oh, you know what? That wasn't such a good idea. Let's forget it for now. And all kidding aside, that's, that's kind of what happened. And in a way, I personally think it's kind of a blessing to the crypto ecosystem because, you know, in the fourth quarter of last year, when we were kind of on the lows in the post-FTX situation, I was starting to speak to some of these institutional investors for the first time in a while. And I was expecting, oh, man, I was just expecting all sorts of negativity. But the reaction was actually the exact opposite. And it may inform, like, what's going on with BlackRock now. So I'd go speak to people and they'd be like, They missed the whole thing because they never got out of committee. So most of the crypto natives, they were like, oh, my head hurts. You know, this is terrible. I need to go to a bar again. And the like the institutional TradFi guys were like, hey, this seems like a good buying opportunity here at Bitcoin. (laughs) Right. I mean, it was kind of crazy and they missed the whole thing. And I think the other thing was because of the fact that they didn't have active positions, you know, as you and I both know there was a lot of ugliness in 2022. I mean, the price action was terrible, but like the stories in some ways, many of them, unfortunately, were worse. And if you're not really invested in the space, you don't follow it that closely, right? And so all these guys, they kind of missed the whole show. They missed the emotional pain. They missed the financial pain. And so I do think that we're we're coming out of this pretty strong. I still think we have a good distance to go. I think if this BlackRock ETF is approved, and I have no expert insight on that whatsoever. Uh, but if it does, I think it's it's going to co- cause a renaissance in not immediately jumping into the market, but I think what I'll describe as kind of going back to committee again, like we saw back at the end of 2021. I, it's it's surprising, right? It certainly was counterintuitive to the what I thought the reaction would be for many of these institutions.
0: Yeah, I mean, isn't the old adage to to buy when there's blood in the streets?
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you just wake up at that point, it's perfect.
0: And it's also kind of a a gift and a curse that uh, larger scale institutions have a sort of molasses-like speed because of the inherent bureaucracy that ties them down. But much like Bitcoin and and that being successful for that protocol, how long it takes for something to get through to to update it, it could be a feature, not a bug. So something that kind of, I would say, go as far as uh, was a big aha moment for me, was when I was discussing uh, with a previous guest that a lot of institutional clients will uh, hold gold as a part of their portfolio and that you don't necessarily have a pension holding literal gold in a safe at their headquarters, that there's a custodian that provides these solutions and it's Loomis. Uh, You buy the gold and then Loomis holds and stores it for you and charges a fee. This is gonna be similar for digital assets. And the only thing that is different between a commodity like gold, which is physical, and a digital asset is, of course, that it's native on the internet, but you do get to hold your keys, you do get to hold your coins. And that's one of the beauty, one of the things that makes this asset class really unique and interesting. And so for the half of your clients that are the institution side, they do need to have this counterparty that they can blame, I guess, or ask to custody those keys. And so this is where Senso steps in. There is a multi-pronged approach that integrates a little bit of decentralization and potentially a little bit of centralization. Maybe this is an opportunity for uh, you to give our listeners like an elevator pitch of what Senso is, and then maybe we can dig into a little bit more of the specifics.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, and thanks for the opportunity. So we are a technology provider. Senso is a technology provider. And what we uh, enable is our customers who are users, who are organizations, to actually be completely sovereign on their keys and their assets, while the technology itself eliminates, as I may have mentioned earlier, all of the complexity and vulnerability of that key management. And what that means is, is that we have a technology that is actually, I, I like to say about sovereignty uh, it's just my, this is my little hobby horse. There's no such thing as qualifying sovereignty. You're either sovereign or you're not. It's like being somewhat pregnant. There's no such thing. And I think it's the same thing with sovereignty. And so all of our software, which involves all the key handling, uh, the software is all open source and it is all decentralized as well, which means that the software runs in our uh, clients, own hardware that they own and they control their keys no one else can extract the keys in fact they can't even extract the keys themselves but they can use them which makes it very safe and those keys speak to uh, policy engines that rely that that reside on chain so on like the ethereum protocol and the polygon protocol and the like and there is a trustless connection between those keys in users mobile phones that are encrypted with device keys and the phone's HSM, which can't be exfiltrated, and they can sign things and authenticate themselves. um, And they talk to these contracts, which get deployed on their behalf by our technology, but which once again is under their complete control. They can't be upgraded by us, they can't be tampered by us, and they're fully open source. They're fully open source and audited. And so our users really do have complete sovereignty, but the magic sauce really for us is that normally when you have this sovereignty, as we spoke earlier, is that then you got like this key material and this recovery material. And geez, you know, what do I do with this? This is is dangerous in and of itself. And what we've done is we've done some interesting things with cryptography such that everything is seedless. So I would say I were running a hedge fund and I had a couple of colleagues and Dylan, you decided to join the hedge fund and we wanted you to be a signer. You would download the Senso app. There would be a root seed of keys put on your phone. Uh, They would be encrypted with, for example, the device keys from our phones, which are in the secure enclave, and exported. No one would actually have any complete set of private material, and none of it is unencrypted. And then if you went out to a bar and you lost your phone and you came in the next day, you said, geez, I didn't back this up with any seed phrase, right? It looked like magic, but now I'm in trouble because I lost my key. We're going to have a brick company. Uh, we can actually reconstitute that by doing a multi-approver transaction and cryptographically reassembling that together. And it goes back on your new phone, identical key, but and encrypted and fully operational again. And so really, this is the piece, I believe, to have been the missing piece for self-custody, particularly for organizations.
0: And can you maybe just since a lot of our audience is this is, and and we're not like a technical oriented show where we dig deep into the cryptography and the mathematics behind it and everything but maybe uh, at a surface level could you just explain why this is significant specifically from the point of view that a lot of larger scale enterprise and entities will have multiple individuals that work for the company that are capable of signing off transactions so could you just maybe share how uh, Senso provided, met that like product market fit and why it's so important to be able to add and remove users from the ability for a company to have signers on behalf of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe I could take a step back for one second and then attack the question uh, directly on, which is that, you know, aside, as you said, aside from all the cryptography and everything, and, you know, the truth be told is I listen to podcasts as well. I consume them as well. And, you know, you hear these guys talking about, you know, Shamir secret sharing versus like, you know, MPC, TSS, signature generation protocols, and you just want to blow your brains out, right? So the, the really, we should think about these things in very common sense terms, like, do you have your keys or does someone else have your keys? Are your keys managed with open source software or closed source software? And then finally, in the case of an organization, as you said, okay, does the organization itself have control over the keys and the roles that different people in the organization play, which of course is compliant with how almost every organization runs now not doing crypto, right? It's like different people have different roles. Or is it like every signer has their own metamask and they have their own like private material running around, which of course you couldn't run Goldman Sachs that way, nor should you run any organization that way. And so what we've done with our uh, software within the organization and our solution is to reconcile what I would describe as the nuanced roles that different parties play within the organization and the roles they have as key signers and making sure that the primacy in the whole relationship is the organization, right? And just to give you a very simple example, if Tim Cook goes down in a plane crash, it's not like they say, hey, we're closing Apple, it's over, the company's over, right? The company is an abstraction that lives through any, what I'll describe as mortality event, I use that in a stylized feds way, not like an actual mortality, of any or all the individuals within the organization. But with crypto, traditionally, if you got six guys with MetaMasks and they have all their private material and they do go go down in a plane crash, you're dead. And so what we did is we've created a system where the organization persists, even in the mortality event of all of the members of the organization. And that's an absolute critical element and one that really has not been addressed, except once again, by providers who have centralized solutions that require trust.
0: And is this a system you're you're talking about called the uh, hierarchical key management system? Okay, cool. So you're nodding along, you're saying yes. So this is something that I think differentiates Senso from a lot of maybe other entities that you're competing against for the same type of clients. So how does maybe like an Eli 5 explain like I'm 5 in a consumable way, how hierarchical key management differs from a technical solution like multi-party computation or MPC?
1: So multi-party computation does have a hierarchical element to it. So you can have nuanced roles, but once again, the cost of that is actually centralization and trust. However, if you don't wanna have decentralization and trust, which is the laudable goal, you could use a multi, what they call a multi-sig contract. And the most common one known runs on Ethereum, it's called SAFE, uh, formerly Gnosis SAFE. And in a Gnosis SAFE, it has great decentralization, right, and it has great policy engine, and in fact, We use many of those components happily in our solution for our EVM uh, contracts, but it has no key management, which means that if there are five signers on a multi-sig contract, they each have their own keys and they are sovereign over those keys themselves. The organization has no, as you would put it, hierarchical control. And what we've done is we've built a system of managing those keys as a group by the organization in mobile devices such that the organization can have that hierarchical control where there can be org admins that set policies that affect how those keys can be used and by whom and importantly, how those privileges can be revoked or replaced by the organization itself. And so it's for the first time, bringing that level of key functionality to a fully decentralized organizational element. We've had decentralized organizational element, but there hasn't been any of what we call key management or key abstraction associated with it.
0: I think that this is the perfect time in the history of technology for a product like Senso to exist. Another thing that kind of stuck out to me for the ease of use of the solution you guys are building is that end users will be using their mobile phone to do biometric confirmation. So could you just also share a little bit more about the role that a mobile phone plays in the Senso ecosystem, and maybe just kind of give a a brief overview or an example of what the workflow will look like when someone is indeed performing a transaction on behalf of their company.
1: So uh, we do use mobile phones, and the reason we use mobile phones is, firstly, uh, they are the most secure individual computing device device in the world. All the phones that we support Have what are called, you know, HSMs, hardware security modules in them, where keys cannot be extracted from those modules, right? So they are ubiquitous and they are incredibly secure, and they can also tie users' identity through biometry to their key signing. These are all absolutely critical and useful elements. And so we have two pieces of our application. We have a web app to be used in a laptop, and that's where transactions are initiated and relayed, for example, to the mobile phone and the uh, and the on-chain contracts. The on-chain contracts are opaque to customers. And then the phones are used for signing and approving transactions. And what would happen is transaction will be initiated by a member of an organization, depending upon authorizations and approval uh, criteria, approval notifications will come to the phones. It's an incredibly smooth event. It's like getting your Uber notification You open up the Senso app, it basically accesses that key. Once again, the key cannot be taken off the phone by the users, by the people who run the organizations, it is on there and can only be accessed by a biometric gating of the secure enclave. And then there are approvals or denials, and then those transactions are uh, relayed to a blockchain. And so all of the activity takes place, all all of the activity that requires trust and sensitivity is uh, controlled by the user, either the phones or the contracts. And it's uh, initiate on the web app, approve on the mobile app. And there's no other functionality on the mobile apps as well, because we wanted to ensure that we reduced the attack service on the phones to an absolute minimum. We're very security minded.
0: Yeah. Redundancy through simplicity or resiliency through simplicity, I should say. So I guess before I ask this next question, would it be fair to say that or to paint Senso in the picture that Though providing custodial solutions for institutional investor-like entities, Senso has also prioritized being open source?
1: Thanks for asking. Uh, Our philosophy is all key handling software should be open source, period, full stop. And, you know, the ledger guys who I have tremendous respect for, I mean, what they've done in the space for self-custody is just remarkable. You may recall in May, they had this situation where they enabled Ledger Recover. And, you know, they had the poor guys had one of the worst public relations experiences in the history of crypto and from guys who have done really, really great things. But the one thing is that they have subsequently decided to open source that code base that has to do with that recovery. And my feeling is, had they done that in advance, none of this would have actually happened. And and customers, users should absolutely demand that all key handling software is open source. Otherwise, it's just, trust me.
0: Yeah, more of the same. Thanks for providing that context. So maybe you can share then a little bit of the opportunities and the constraints that have come over the past few years while building this type of solutions for the types of clients you have. Because... I can imagine that uh, the more high profile, a larger scale enterprise, uh, they might want a little bit of proprietary information on how their assets may or may not be secured. And then also, you guys are making your secret sauce. So you, you don't want to share everything in open source too quickly. So what was it like kind of the fine line walking that over the past few years? And again, what were some of the opportunities and constraints?
1: It's a great question. and. You know, I do think that it's difficult, and and we see this time and time again, if you design a business around closed-source software, and then for whatever reason you are compelled to open-source it, it produces tremendous tension in your business model. Not always, but generally speaking, that's going to be the case, because you've really designed your whole product and business model, possibly around the fact that, like, your product couldn't be reverse engineered or something, right? And so you you can end up really in a very very difficult situation, and uh, it's, it's exceedingly exceedingly painful. But you know, we went back. I, I mean, I'll tell you, we originally we originally were building an MPC wallet, uh, so you know, multi party computation. But as we were building it, and we spent quite a bit of time on it, we said, you know, this actually isn't going to cut it because it's not sufficiently decentralized. And a lot of the code can't be open source. And so after about, I don't know, maybe eight months of build, we just threw it out and we said, okay, we've got to be committed to this other approach. And once you do that, I think that you, you can build a product where you can say, hey, it's going to work for us commercially, even if it is totally open source. And in fairness, um, I will highlight that I mentioned that there are two portions of the application that require trust, which is the mobile phone that has the key handling software and the on-chain smart contracts and policy engines. And those speak to each other trustlessly with only signed transactions, but they are open source. But we also have a web to back end and front end, which is effectively what we describe as a relay server, but it is a relay server with an incredibly rich and beautiful user experience. And that is closed source. I mean, it's a very large application anyway. It doesn't affect the trust of the application at all because basically it's just those transactions are are being encrypted and sent between the keys and all of the the, the guts of the operation. But it's there where we can provide users a really rich experience um, and actually use that potentially commercially uh, to our advantage. Um, But that being said, I I think we're very, very committed to making sure that nobody has any components that they have to rely upon for trust that are not open source.
0: I've had conversations in the past about creating a trust that can manage uh, a 401k or an IRA on behalf of it for whatever reason that the the trust wants to manage it and when it comes to custodial providers one of the necessary components for these trusts to be able to operate under IRS guidelines is to ensure that there's no unfettered access to the accounts which essentially means that let's say the account holder needs to stop moving their assets because they're having a conversation with the law, unfettered access would mean that the custodial provider could stop the flow of transactions. So let's say the client, the institutional client that you're working with, uh, for some reason the IRS wants to state that, or another governmental entity wants to state, you cannot access these assets for now. Through Senso. is there a way that, there can be like a, a way to override any transactions or anything like that and provide unfettered access to the assets that are being stored via the Senso Senso solution?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think this whole idea of censorship is an interesting one and where people can get very exercised over it and understandably so. So in our case, users could access directly the smart contracts with their keys without going through our relay server if they uh, wanted to. But, you know, bear in mind, and look, I shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be in any way uh, compromising my own position, but presumably uh, at some point, if they were US-based persons and the IRS is chasing you down, I'm sure there are a lot of ways they can make your life miserable as well. But in the case of Senso, there are alternatives to using our relay server, which is also essential. Because as you can think about it, Dylan, we also have to provide for Forget about what if the IRS comes down? What if uh, Senso uh, disappears for whatever reason? Users have to be able to access their assets. So they can do so, though the experience of accessing their assets is a little more cumbersome than if uh, we were up and running. So I would describe it.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that you bring that up. The immutability of these assets that we store on chain, we have to have an ego check, particularly when we're running a startup and putting all of our energy and time into it that sometimes businesses just shudder and people's assets will live forever on chain. So it's really interesting to hear how Senso has addressed this and also provided for alternatives to access this, I guess, information directly on chain. It's really great to hear that a company is thinking about immutability in this way. So I'm kind of curious then, how does Senso go about choosing the chains that you guys work with? I know you mentioned Polygon and Ethereum earlier, but are there other networks that you're also exploring? How do you choose what to what networks to explore? Do you do internal review yourself or do you base it off of the conversations you're having with your clients?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a little bit of both. And I would say, you know, whatever the zeitgeist might be. So as you're well aware, we rewind the clock a couple of years. The prevailing wisdom was that we were going to have a reasonably substantial number of competing and uh, substantive L1s and that they all had different flavors. And I think there was a guy from Dragonfly Capital who said you can think of these different blockchains as being different cities with different characteristics and the like. And of course, there's been big, big debate whether or not that's going to be the case. And you'll have this big horizontal profusion of blockchains with different characteristics with underlying base L1 characteristics, or you're, instead you're gonna have a vertical stack on top of obviously Ethereum. And um, we had actually built on Solana and Bitcoin as well. Um, we had a very big Solana project that we we have finished though we're not releasing it at this time. And it appears at least for the time being that the EVM crowd has gotten sufficient gravity that I think that is going to be the ecosystem that we focus on in the near and intermediate term. And so we're, we're launching on Ethereum. We've launched on Ethereum and Polygon. Um, we're going to round out the balance of the substantial EVMs over the course of the coming next few months. And then I think we're going to reassess. But right now, it seems like the, you know, you had this explosion outwards and now we have the vacuum sucking everything back in. And, you know, I would say I just returned from uh, ECC in Paris last week. And I mean, it's the the community is so serious and substantive and like full of toothsome work that's being done. It's really encouraging to see what's going on. So uh, aside from any like pragmatic being a business guy type thing, I think it's really encouraging to be uh involved with the people in that space.
0: So that's interesting that you mentioned Ecc last week, just armchair quarterbacking. The thing I kind of heard come out of that event was just the Prominence of the of zero knowledge roll ups and proofs and products, so I guess to play devil's advocate, because I, I do appreciate the metaphor you use with the explosion and then everything kind of compounding back into itself. To play devil's advocate though, let's say that twenty seventeen happens again and twenty twenty one happens again and these networks get clogged. Do you think that there will be another outward look towards alt l ones? We saw it happen in 2017 with like Quantum and Neo and uh, Stellar. And then we saw it in 2022 with Solana and Avalanche, yada, yada, yada. You know, you can, you can mention all the ones that you want. You guys have already built for Solana and are opting not to release in that way. So are you guys going to also be paying attention to three years down the road when potentially the EVM ecosystem becomes a bit congested again. Are you guys thinking about being nimble enough to be on your toes to, to add support for another blockchain? Or are you guys just doubling down on providing the most amount of services as you can for EVM chains?
1: Yeah, well, there you said a couple of interesting things there. Like, So firstly, predicting that far in the future in crypto <laughs> is crazy, right? I'm just trying to get a grip on what's going on right now. Uh, look, we're re- we're reasonably nimble and we're not philosophically, like we're not philosophical Ethereum warriors, right? So we, look, we provide key management and the keys that we produce in these phones can support any chain and is a key management and self-custody services. So we're totally open. I mean, the funny thing is that you said, I think it's just like hilarious to me, is that, you know, you said, am I paying attention? I go, I, you know, I wish I could pay attention. There's so much stuff that goes on in crypto every day that you come in. It's like, I got to figure out what not to pay attention to so I can get my <laughs> job done. So I, I think we're super open to any of that. I mean, for us to enable new support, what we need to do, just technically speaking, is to build a smart contract on that chain that can speak to our phones and then hook in all of like the RPC and other relayer and data layer protocols and stuff. It's actually not that complicated. It's not trivial or, you know, resource constrained like everybody else, but it's not that complicated. But if you ask me right now, today, over the next three months, whether, you know, what I would do, I'm probably going to just keep building on EVM.
0: Yeah, it's really funny that you bring that up, that in the blockchain space alone, there have been, in the past few years, so many verticals that have emerged that you have to really focus on one vertical to filter out the signal through the noise. And now we have DeFi, NFTs, GameFi, Decentralized Identity, Rollups, so much stuff out there that it's almost impossible to keep up to date with what's going on with everything. So I guess then I'm a little bit curious What are the ways in which your clients are using blockchain networks and crypto? Are you finding that they want to participate in DeFi? Are they doing DAOs, NFT, just simple custody solutions? What are the ways in which your various different clients? Because you mentioned you have some that are TradFi-esque and then very Web3-esque. So what are the ways that you guys have to be nimble to the uses that your clients demand of your custodial solution?
1: Yeah. So, Well, I can put it to you this way. You know, we built out a lot of collectible and NFT capability uh, about like uh, six to eight months ago. Uh, No one's using that, Uh, (laughs) you know, particularly given our clientele base, which are like the organizations and the like, uh, for the most part, no one's using that. So uh, that was something that seemed like it was going to be essential. Um, Don't regret rebuild it, I guess, but, you know, no one's using that. And so we have a lot of people who really want very secure and simple custody and key management and actually are very low frequency but are very happy with the solution and then also DeFi is a big area and we enable DeFi pretty seamlessly we're integrated uh we've integrated a wallet connect into our application you know wallet connect just uh they just deprecated wallet connect one and now they're on wallet connect two and we're also we actually have a partnership uh that we recently have into with consensus And we will uh, very likely also have a MetaMask institutional available for our customers very shortly as well. Uh, Because once again, we really believe in choice for our customers.
0: Perfect. And I'm not sure whether you can disclose specific names of who your customers and clients are, but maybe could you, if if you can't, could you give some examples of the types of clients that they might represent or the types of brands or industries they might be in?
1: Sure. I mean, I think there are a lot of them are financial and or native crypto. And, you know, from, I think our perspective, our clients generally are not like Goldman Sachs. Like we really didn't design the product for Goldman Sachs. It could support Goldman Sachs in many ways, it has the integrity, but it's really not designed for that. So they're, you know, what I'll describe as affiliations, organizations, or financial companies that have needs for two to 10 signers on custody solutions who want to, you know, super secure, easy to use, self-custody solution. So they're in that sort of small to mid-range type, at, type universe is how, is how I would put it.
0: Perfect. And kind of uh, zooming out before we wrap up, we were mentioning earlier, I'm based out of Denver. One of my favorite conferences every year here is ETH Denver. I personally always feel like there's at least one takeaway that I can come away with from that event. I'm sure you feel similar with ETH CC, for example, with me this year at ETH Denver. It was in March of this year. This was before the SEC hearing, and there was still just a lot of regulatory unclarity. The fear to greed index was quite fear-oriented on Bitcoin buying. So I walked away from that event, stayed uh, kind of afraid that there's a brain drain of crypto companies and blockchain companies in the US who are choosing to opt to locate and build outside the States. Now, my thesis is a little bit different than it was in March, but At ETH Denver, that was my main walk away from from that event. What would you say was your main walk away from ETHCC, which just happened last week
1: in Paris? Yeah. So I would say there are probably a couple, but I'm only going to go with one as you requested. So what you really see is, you know, I would say the hardcore infrastructure that is necessary to enable adequate user experience is being built. And I think, you know, technically that would be uh, called account abstraction. And also, newly now, for the first time, they're using the term key abstraction, which is really the thing that Senso has been working on for the last two years or so, this key abstraction. And these are the things that are gonna actually make the user experience, whether you're an organization or an individual, actually acceptable, so we can actually finally have uh, some realistic adoption.
0: So you felt away feeling uh, like you guys are poised to be in the right place at the right time.
1: I did. And it's a nice feeling to have because as a small businessman, you don't always have that opportunity. Absolutely.
0: So what are some of the next steps for Senso and what are the types of projects you're interested in hearing from?
1: The next steps for us are just to build awareness. We have partnerships that we we're, we're, uh, we've just recently partnered with. Uh, I mentioned Consensus, and also with Chainlink. We're really super excited about both of those partnerships because they're super high quality organizations and they're committed to decentralization. I think uh, stay tuned, we're gonna have another couple of announcements uh, of equal importance over the course of the next couple of months. And our goal is to solidify and deepen those relationships where we really feel we have high quality people committed to decentralization and actually get those ecosystem participants to be uh, utilizing Senso and we're having some success in that. And I think those are the things that we're really focused on right now.
0: And what's the best way for people to reach out to you or to reach out to Senso?
1: I think the easiest way is uh, our website is uh, senso.co. Also, um, since we do deal with TradFi guys, we are on LinkedIn. We have a prominent presence on LinkedIn, which is embarrassing to admit on a uh, crypto podcast. So my apologies as well. And so um, uh, th- I think those are two very reliable ways to get a hold of us.
0: I'll do a shameless plug. We've been building out our presence on on LinkedIn as well for the Smart Economy podcast. So it's nice to know we're in good company. Uh, one of the key themes this year that I've been really enjoying having conversations with folks like you who are rubbing elbows with uh, financial institutions is that despite the calamities of 2022, that the institutions have been here, they've been interested and they've been seeking builders who are creating solutions such as yours. So thank you so much for having this conversation. It just further solidified these great conversations I've been having about the industry that you're building in and for leveraging and utilizing this technology. So it was great to spend an hour chatting with you, Andrew, and I look forward to keeping up with the great progress that you guys make at Senso.
1: Dylan, thank you very much. I'm really a great pleasure both speaking with you and getting to know you. So thank you. It was great. Cheers.
0: Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really interesting to dive into the nuances behind how federal intervention was necessary during the financial crisis of 2008, but also the importance of self-sovereignty of our digital assets today. It was also refreshing to hear Andrew touch on the point that their clients' assets might remain on-chain longer than the company is around, and that they've built for their contracts to outlive the company. I also couldn't help but nod my head in agreement when Andrew said, quote, all key handling should be open sourced, end quote, which allows everyone to verify the security of the protocols that they're using to store their assets. On that note, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.